This is the Israel Connection, coming to you live on JE Community Radio on 88FM and streaming over the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. In the second half of today's program, I will be speaking with Michelle Bloom and uh, Professor Yoav Livni as well. Uh, Michelle is the Executive Director of the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce in New South Wales and Professor Livni is currently a guest here who is uh, a specialist in uh, uh, developing uh, meat substitutes uh, with uh, genuine protein. But first up, though, I want to focus on goings-on in Australia, with much attention being on the findings by New South Wales Police that the vile protest that took place on October the 9th next to the Sydney Opera House uh, was uh, certainly has caused uh, much of a stir. Uh, Sherry Markson on Sky News devoted much airtime to this matter, saying it exposes a cover-up by New South Wales Police amid revelations they ignored testimonies from numerous witnesses who say that they heard the gas the Jews chant at the Sydney Opera House protest. Police obtained statements from several individuals who attended the protest indicating they heard the phrase. However, these statements have not attributed the phrase to any specific individual. A statement from New South Wales, New South Wales Police read, Sherry Markson revealed police failed to start tracking down the gas to Jews footage from the group that first made it public until just before Christmas. Police didn't say the gas to Jews chant hadn't happened. They just said at their press conference on Friday that they couldn't prove it to the standard required for criminal prosecution and they couldn't identify any individuals who allegedly said it, Sherry Markson commented. That is very different to saying the gas to Jews chant didn't happen. Yet, bizarrely, in the wake of this press conference, some are celebrating a journalism win. It's sick and twisted, said Sherry. Sherry pointed to statements from MLC, Member of Legislative Council, Stephen Lawrence, for, it stands for Labor, and the former ABC fill-in host, Antoinette Latouf, who celebrated the findings. Let's listen, to begin with, to part of what Sherry Markson said. To put this all in context for a second, imagine media organisations running a campaign that only a chant of F the Muslims was said by an angry mob burning flags, not gas the Muslims. It would never happen because both are equally upsetting, racist and offensive. There's no distinction between the levels of offence and intimidation that it caused. The media organisations who ran this campaign, namely the online website Crikey, should be condemned in the strongest terms for racism. It's shocking that there are claims that Jews who heard with their own ears the chant, gas the Jews, should be investigated. Antoinette Latouf wrote in Crikey just yesterday that the barrister for the pro-Palestinian protest former police officer Mahmoud Hawila called on New South Wales police to investigate the videos noting that it was an offence to give false or misleading information in the investigation of a complaint. 
And he's quoted in her article saying, I imagine police, protesters and other affected communities will be looking very closely at this to detect whether any laws were breached and carefully considering their options. Just let that digest. So Latouf is now reporting that the Jews should be investigated for the anti-Semitic chants against them that they heard just 48 hours after the worst massacre in a single day since the Holocaust. And not only has Latouf suggested that further investigation should be undertaken into what took place on October the 9th outside the Opera House, but she posted on Twitter that she was looking forward to receiving apologies from the Australian, Sky News, the Australian Jewish Association, Executive Council for Australian Jury and at least a couple of WhatsApp groups. Moreover, the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network and Sydney-based Palestine Action Group in a Weasley media statement condemned the Australian Jewish Association, political leaders and media outlets that distributed and reported on what they say was an inaccurately subtitled video claiming that protesters chanted particular phrases that potentially constituted a hate crime during the protest at the Opera House on October the 9th. APAN President Nasser Mashni said the outcome of this police investigation was a damning indictment of those individuals and outlets that used the inaccurate video to demonise protesters and clamp down on pro-Palestine protests. This is quite extraordinary that pro-Palestinians who behaved in an indisputably anti-Semitic fashion are calling for an apology for what was perceived by the world based on what they heard that the pro-Palestinian protesters outside the Opera House on October the 9th had shouted, gas the Jews, amongst other anti-Semitic chants. The behaviour of the protesters was undeniably anti-Semitic, but apparently it was only tepid anti-Semitism, not full-blown anti-Semitism. This suggests, according to the weird logic of the Australian-Palestinian Advocacy Network and the Sydney-based Palestine Action Group, a certain level of anti-Semitism is tolerable, and only if it crosses a red line does it need to be seriously condemned. Seriously? This brings to mind the arrest of two men for the arson attack on the Burger Tree uh, Cafe, which the police maintained from the very beginning was not a hate crime committed by anyone motivated by views on the war in Gaza. In an article in The Age following the arrests, titled Burger Tree Owner Defends Arson Hate Crime Claim That Sparked Ugly Clash, it was revealed the Burger Tree Owner Hashem Hash Taya had hit back at those calling for him to apologise for branding the alleged firebombing of his Caulfield store a hate crime. The article reported, A rally in support of Taya, and more generally Palestine, in the area the night after the fire turned ugly when a pro-Palestine group clashed with a pro-Israel group and police pepper sprayed at least one protester as tensions began to boil over. It was the contemptible Nasser Mashni, the head of APAN's Politburo, who was instrumental in exploiting the arson attack for the political advantage of the pro-Palestinian brigade. The Islamic Council of Victoria also released a media statement in which it expressed grave concern that this was an intentional act amounting to a hate crime. If Mashni is calling for an apology over the protest outside the Opera House, should he not first be apologising for the vicious insinuations that the Burgundy fire had 
that the burglary fire had been instigated by Zionists. Now, coming back to Shelley Markson's remarks about what took place at the Opera House on October the 9th, I approached Stephen Lawrence, who was the Labor member for Dubbo in New South Wales, to invite him to explain why he was proselytising about the rally on October the 9th, and his reply to me yesterday was, thanks for this, I'll have a look at your program and get back to you. How long would the interview be? I promptly told him I wanted about 15 to 20 minutes of his time and have not heard back from him. Par for the course, I must say. I tried again last night to get him to speak on my show, mindful by experience that those who are not on our side generally don't have the guts to defend themselves when there is the possibility that their views will be challenged. In the publication Crikey yesterday, an article appeared titled When it comes to the Middle East, hypocritical mins, that's the uh, New South Wales Premier, wants MPs to do what he says, not do as he asks. With the subtitle, Chris Minns says New South Wales MPs have no business talking about Israel, but it's okay when he does it. A couple of months ago, New South Wales Premier Chris Minns warned Stephen Lawrence over a late-night anti-Israel speech in which Lawrence accused Israel of ethnic cleansing and claimed political and media elites are perpetuating a one-sided alternative reality by blindly supporting the Jewish state while ignoring its alleged crimes, war crimes. The late-night speech prompted a stern caution from Premier Chris Minns, who distanced himself from the remarks and told the, the Herald he wanted all parties to refrain from incendiary rhetoric. Lawrence declined to respond to Minns. It appears that his views are out of whack with Labor's position in New South Wales. Maybe he should consider resigning from Parliament and joining the Greens, who would undoubtedly welcome him with open arms as being someone having obscene Israelophobic views. I checked out Stephen Lawrence's Facebook page for the post about the Opera House fiasco. There he said, the growing dangers of real-time disinformation influencing social and political developments is real, and this is a powerful example and a cautionary tale. Unacceptable things occurred at that protest, but the scale, extent and truth matters. Any suggestions to the contrary seek to diminish the significance of the Holocaust. We don't need uh, people like Lawrence, of course, to be preaching to us about the Holocaust. I told Lawrence that the protest on October the 9th portended a situation in Australia that has never been experienced by Jews in this country and was reminiscent of what Jews who know their recent history can remember from the 1930s in Europe. To accuse Jews, many of whom have direct experience of the Holocaust, with diminishing the significance of the Holocaust is like telling Jews to cool it because the anti-Semitic behaviour at the protest was just uh, 7.0 on the anti-Semitism scale and not 9.5, invalidating the experience of Jews on our streets. I note that on his post, Lawrence had referred to the Holocaust with a lowercase h, diminishing the significance of the Holocaust, as he says should not be done. When the word, when applied to the Holocaust, that, that amounted to the slaughter of 6 million Jews, should have a capital H. Apparently Lawrence corrected one instance of the spelling of Holocaust in his post, 
after acknowledging the error of his ways, but overlooked another in his pontifications. One forceful comment in response to Lawrence's demeaning post caught my eye. I'm embarrassed that I went to school with you. Your abandonment of the Jewish community is both cowardly and disgraceful. I thought you would know better. You are an absolute coward and a useful idiot. Does that gaslighting, does gaslighting the Jewish community make you feel tough? So this is David Schulberg on the Israel Connection and uh, I'm uh, running through uh, some of the events that have been occurring in the Australian context uh, for you this morning before we have our interview in the second half of the show. Yesterday, an article appeared in the Fairfax 9 newspapers, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, titled, As Jews, We Don't Accept That Criticism of Israel's Government is Anti-Semitic, written by two Jews connected with the newly convened Jewish Council of Australia. I have invited representatives of this organisation to come and speak with me on this program, and so far the response has been a deathly silence. The article contends that Australia's pro-Israel lobby groups mischaracterise the reactions of pro-Palestine supporters to Israel's war against Hamas as being anti-Semitic, thus generating fear and demonising Palestinians and their supporters. I still hold out hope that I will get the opportunity to speak with the authors of the article, so I won't preempt all that I would be likely to say on this new development of an organisation that presumptuously is taking the mantle away from our recognised community organisations like the Executive Council of Australian Jury and the Anti-Defamation Commission that are tasked with dealing with anti-Semitism in our community. This old furphy was brought up that that, that claims of anti-Semitism are being exploited to stifle legitimate criticism of Israel's actions, particularly now in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Any observer of the media can see that there is no shortage of criticism of Israel's war in Gaza and that these remarks echo the sentiments of those who have opposed the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition of anti-Semitism, which uh, seems to have uh, gotten lost uh, in recent months, never hearing any remarks about it anymore. That echoes the extraordinary assertions that the ABC has not been giving the pro-Palestinian position a fair go. And the article in the uh, Fairfax 9 papers, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, ends as follows. We write these words knowing that we will face backlash. Palestinians face the worst targeting from lobbyists. However, the State of Israel and groups that lobby on its behalf have no qualms about going after fellow Jews. In order to maintain that their actions are for the benefit of all Jews, they must silence and discredit Jewish dissenters. Every Jew we know who has spoken out against Israel has faced threats, social, in social exclusion, intimidation, campaigns for sacking or attempts to discredit them. We are called self-hating, capos, Nazi sympathisers or fake Jews. Antoinette Latouf's Jewish lawyer, Josh Bornstein, was even called a traitor by a participant in the Lawyers for Israel group which advocated for the broadcaster's sacking. 
We are part of a growing number of Jewish people who have spoken out against Israel's actions. Anti-Semitism is a real threat, but the cynical misappropriation of this term is causing unnecessary fear and shutting down critical dialogue around Israel's war. We are proud of our Jewishness and we refuse to let those with the loudest voices speak for all Jews in Australia. Talking about shutting down critical dialogue, uh, I aim to uh, establish dialogue with those that are necessarily not uh, on uh, on our side, but uh, as I've just been talking about Stephen Lawrence, they, uh, they don't come to the table. This group of Jews represented by this fledgling organisation with this pretentious name, the Jewish Council of Australia, who probably represent barely 1% of the Jewish community, are claiming the high moral ground. They have come out with opinions that a huge majority of the Jewish community in this country would find to be extremely objectionable. They are soliciting support for views that are contentious and challenge the position held by Jews who support Israel, many Jews who have had public misgivings about Israel's behaviour in the past, but who, following the atrocity committed by Hamas on October the 7th, have sadly realised that maintaining their sympathies and support for Palestinians has become untenable. In another development... Former Labor Senator Nova Peres has launched a campaign to reclaim the Aboriginal flag from the war in Gaza, arguing that Indigenous symbols and chants have been misappropriated at pro-Palestine rallies. Peres, who led the campaign to free their Aboriginal flag from copyright restrictions, said she was worried that Indigenous activists could be seen to be turning a blind eye to anti-Semitism. Peres has said, I want to reciprocate by helping overturn a similar lie which is now being told against the Jewish people, that they have no connection to the land of Israel, that they are just settler colonialists. I'm saddened to see our sacred Aboriginal flag, a flag which I fought so hard to be returned to the Aboriginal community, being misappropriated by Palestinian, anti-Israel and anti-Jewish groups in Australia who gave free, outright, prior and informed consent to use our flag for your cause? How can you be allowed to shout out, F the Jews, while burning flags on the steps of the Sydney Opera House? How can we not call this out and stamp this out? Peres said it had become trendy to support the Palestinian cause, but questioned the historical knowledge of some activists, some of whom, she said, relied too heavily on information gleaned from platforms such as TikTok. Of course, there is this adoption of the Indigenous cause by the pro-Palestine brigade based on this trope of intersectionality that all groups that are suffering oppression have something in common. This mentality is one that says, I'll rub your back if you scrub mine. On the Free Palestine Melbourne page on Facebook, a post yesterday about an Indigenous man, Josh Kerr, who died in custody, drawing a correlation, I assume, to the imprisonment was drawing a correlation, I assume, to the imprisonment of Palestinian terrorists by Israel. A long bow indeed. I have reached out to Nova Peres to speak to me, and hopefully I will hear from her soon. 
Anti-Israel activists have fallen out bitterly over claims that there are too many white people advocating for Gaza in a peak lobby group, and that's the use of a former Israeli soldier to back the Palestinian cause is wrong. The peak lobby group uh, being uh, Free Palestine Melbourne, I believe. Block the Dock Melbourne, this group, which is uh, uh, having uh, these contentions, which targets Israeli shipping interests, has savaged Free Palestine Melbourne, claiming the umbrella campaigning group has been overrun by white people who do not speak for the people directly affected by the Middle East conflict. The groups are two of the highest profile pro-Palestinian groups in Australia, often campaigning together to highlight their opposition to Israel's response to the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel last October. The group are at odds with Block the Dock, with which the ignominious Loud Jew Collective is affiliated, declaring publicly it was opposed to the lack of Palestinian people involved in Free Palestine Melbourne's campaigning and against using a former Israeli soldier to promote their cause on behalf of those opposed to the Jewish state. Of course, if one looks at those who are campaigning for Palestine, how many of those are Palestinians? How many of those are genuinely uh, ones that uh, block the dock would say uh, are appropriately uh, ones to advocate for the cause? Now, Nachson Amir is a former IDF officer, the one I believe is being referred to in the uh, concerns by Block the Dock. And he supports Free Palestine Melbourne, and for some reason, exploiting him to back the pro-Palestinian cause just isn't kosher. There appears to be serious dissension amongst the Amalekites, which can only help to undermine them and ultimately destroy their credibility. Now, changing tack, there is a long tradition of some iconic song that comes out of a war that becomes the song that is identified with that war. And while new songs are being released daily, the angry rap anthem Habu Dabu by the duo Nesvetsila, released late last year, could turn out to be that song for this war. The song has inspired outrage in international media, with Al Jazeera criticising it on social media as being genocidal. Nesvetsila is composed of Nesya Levy and Dor Soroka, two musicians just starting their careers, and the song is an angry rap tune that many young Israelis have been embracing. It has now had 17 million views on YouTube and millions more on Spotify, with several remixes already making the rounds. It reached number one on Israel's Marco Hit List, which tracks, plays on streaming platforms and radio. The Habu Tabu comes from the Arabic language and can be translated as swords and strikes or war and strikes, depending on the dialect. But in Hebrew slang, this term refers to raining hell on Israel's opponents. The Euro use lyrics that support the soldiers of the Israel Defence Forces and condemn the perpetrators of the Hamas attack on Israel, calling for the deaths of the leaders of Hamas as well as the Western celebrities Bella Hadid, Mir Khalifa and Dua Lipa. So we're going to have a listen now to the, uh, the song Habu Dabu 
and uh, this is, gives me the opportunity to get my uh, two next guests on the show, Michelle Bloom, the Chief Executive Officer for the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce in New South Wales, and the uh, and Professor Livney, who is the Director of the Sustainable Protein Research Centre at the Technion in Israel. עכברים פאקרים יוצאים מהמחילה עושים אבואליות אמבולים וואלה מילה לא תהיה מחילה על מי אתה חושב שאתה בעל פה צועק פלסטין בחינה? טפי יא בני עמלק חבלה שמאל ימין שמאל איך כל המדינה במדים מגליל עד אילת לוחמים לוחמות טוב לבן ומגב קרקל ברדלס הבאנו את כל הצבא עליכם ונשבע לא תהיה מחילה טפי יא בני עמלק כל היחידות מוכנות גולני נחלאווי ZANG <laughs> Well, you've been listening to the song Habu Dabu that uh, is a bit of a rage in Israel that uh, has come out of the, uh, the Israeli uh, war with Gaza. That's uh, how it's evolved. And in the first uh, half of today's show, I've been uh, talking about the, uh, the police investigation that took place in uh, Sydney over the... Uh, protests that occurred outside the Sydney Opera House on October the 9th that uh, the police have uh, decided uh, did not uh, contain the chanting uh, gas to Jews and so consequently uh, the some legal threshold which apparently exists has uh, not been uh, exceeded and uh, so uh, prosecution can't proceed. I had wanted to get Uh, Stephen Lawrence on the program, like I had mentioned earlier, who's a, a member of the Legislative Council, a Labor member in New South Wales, to talk about uh, 
the situation in New South Wales and possible new legislation to strengthen the crime code, but uh, he didn't uh, come to the party. So let's uh, continue now with the second part of the show. I'd like to welcome now Michelle Bloom, the Chief Executive Officer for the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce in New South Wales, and another special guest who is joining us, namely Professor Yoav Livni, the Director of the Sustainable Protein Research Centre at the Technion in Israel. Welcome to you both to the Israel Connection. Thank you, David. It's lovely to be here. Okay, great to have you. Now let's uh, kick off with you, Michelle. Uh, tell us about the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce, uh, who you are and, and what you do. Oh, thank you, David. So um, the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce, or the AICC as we're most commonly known, is a, a not-for-profit organisation. We were set up in 1970 uh, as an organisation uh, whose purpose was to build collaboration and connection between Australia and Israel for the benefit of both countries. And we do that through many different uh, means, but particularly with a focus on business and innovation. But also we do work in facilitating things like medical research and health collaborations between the two countries, social impact collaborations. One area we've done a lot of work in is domestic violence um, and taking some models of using technology and innovation from Israel to help um, support better outcomes in Australia for, for in that area as well. Um, so that's that's I guess what we are. We, we run a very uh, we run uh, around the country. Um, I run the chamber in, in based in Sydney. Um, we have a sister organization, the Israel Australia Chamber of Commerce in Tel Aviv, who we work with very closely. And what we do as an organisation is particularly things like right, we run a very big program of business events. Um, we And we were very delighted, in fact, to have our first event of the year this year with uh, Professor Livney yesterday. We had a, a, a round table with a, a lot of people um, who have a great interest in the work that he's doing. And I, I won't preempt that, but we run about 50 or so events a year. And we also, in better times, take um, a lot of business delegations to Israel. To, to, to look at business opportunities and collaboration. Yes. Just uh, to clear up, uh, do you have any association uh, with the Chamber in uh, Victoria? Absolutely. So we're all part of the, the same Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce, and so we, we have um, offices in each state. So that my, my colleague, uh, Marcus Mandy, runs the, the Chamber in Victoria together with Leon Kempler, the National President, um, and we have... Um, other offices also in Adelaide and Perth and and Brisbane. Okay, not in Tasmania. <laughs> not in Tasmania, no. <laughs> All right. Uh, so what's been the impact of uh, the war that's going on between Israel and Hamas on your activities? Um, I guess the, the, um, the main impact um, has been that we, we've had to cancel delegations to Israel. We... Um, of course, um, have, we were in fact meant to take a group of business leaders across to Israel um, on the 11th of October and that couldn't proceed because of the war. And, and at the moment, um, we're sort of deferring delegations till about the middle of the year when we hope they'll resume. Um, the situation is stable and um, Australian business leaders are, you know, able to join us. Um, of course, we've been doing a lot of work um, 
helping some of our members who are Israeli companies um, and people within our network. We've been trying to offer support to them. And, you know, I guess we also are very focused on providing a very strong um, narrative about, I guess, the the role of um, the, the positive things that are happening in Israel despite the terrible situation. One of the things that we did that we, I guess, the most proud of was on the 10th of October, just three days after the horrific attack, we ran our annual conference, which we called the Australia-Israel Innovation Summit. And, uh, you know, we had to make a quick decision about running that. Um, we had many of our Israeli speakers were unable to, to join us. They had to return to Israel. They were called to action to do things like leading Israel's cyber response during the war and virtual health response and all sorts of things. But we went ahead with, in true Israeli spirit, we found um, others joined us um, as speakers and helped us to, to continue with the program. Our partners, our business partners of Corporate Australia stayed strongly supportive about what we wanted to do. Everyone, everyone came. We didn't have one person who didn't join the program as planned. We had hundreds of business leaders in attendance we had um, an Israeli tech and innovation showcase as part of the program, and we had about 25 speakers on the day. And I guess for me, that was a true demonstration of Israeli spirit, uh, resilience and also an opportunity to show the, op the contribution that Israel makes to the world in so many areas, whether it be um, innovation, um, cybersecurity, health, so many different areas. Um, and, and that was the best thing we could do in the circumstances, I think. Now, we know that uh, Israel is uh, known as the startup nation, a very high-tech country, and uh, I don't necessarily want to go into the, the reasons why it is uh, so innovative. It's a whole uh, topic in its own right. Uh, but the current, what, what is the current situation now uh, in terms of Israel's innovation economy the, with so many people having to uh, go off to war in, in one way or another uh, isn't this having a, a major impact upon Israel's economy? I mean, I, I think there's definitely an effect, but what is um, true about Israel and, and actually, uh, I guess, a, a really beautiful um, um, quote that I can, that came from the CEO of Intel, um, who, you know, have a very large investment in Israel, a huge presence. They've been there for over 50 years, I think they might contribute something like their exports from Intel or for Israel, I think contribute something like 5% of the GDP of, um, of Israel. They have about 20,000 staff on the ground there. Um, he was, you know, Intel, like many companies, has had, you know, I think in the early days they had about 20, 25% of their staff on reserve duty. They had lost staff members to you know, had been killed in the attacks. Um, they had staff members who were hostages. Um, you know, it's very, it's a typical thing, a small country where everyone is impacted. But uh, they, you know, he said the Israelis are the most resilient people on earth. You know, despite the war, they had not missed a single product delivery. They had not missed a single commitment. And that is, um, you know, truly, truly remarkable. And, you know, you, I was just on the phone before this to another, the, a member of ours, a cybersecurity company, um, where they also said to me that, um, you know, they've still got about um, 30 staff on active duty. They've got lots of family members on active duty, family members who've been impacted by the attacks on October 7. 
but they're managing through it. Everything is continuing as usual. Um, and I think, you know, to just talk about, you know, the the, the way that um, Israelis continue despite the despite the war to perhaps they might be on reserve duty but they'll still cover their jobs as best they can Pe people will work together their global offices will cover for them so i mean it's too too soon to say exactly what the impact will be because we're still in the middle of this and we don't know how long it will go and we really don't know but i think the, you know the resilience of the Israeli tech sector and the innovation um, sector is is truly extraordinary, and I think there's a lot of lessons for that for other people all over the world who you know when you're going through a crisis to to continue in this way. And just I guess one more interesting fact, just to to round out that Intel story. Um, late last year, Intel announced that it would be making a 25 would be would be investing in a 25 billion US dollar plant chip manufacturing plant, um, expanding its existing plant um, in in Kiryat Gat in the south of Israel, not far from the Gaza border. And that's just a truly remarkable thing to hear in the midst of a war that a, a major major multinational like that is making that level of commitment. In the middle of a war, so I mean, this was obviously something long, you know, planned or thought about, but it didn't stop because of the level of, of, of uh, I guess, resilience that that they saw despite the situation. Yes, it's uh, stunning. Of course, one can appreciate uh, Israel having this resilience, having essentially been a, a country since its formation in in 1948 uh, that's been under uh, perpetual. Uh, state of of war virtually so uh it it does breed that kind of resilience into into the people according to the bank of israel the war is costing the israeli economy 600 million dollars a week due to work absences uh, which is equivalent apparently to six percent of the weekly gdp and the bank also stated that the estimate does not reflect total damage and did not include damages caused by the absence of palestinian and foreign workers uh, that seems to uh, highlight, I think, that there is a serious impact. And I think further, I've been hearing that the government guarantees the incomes of businesses in Israel, which have been affected by the war in Gaza, when staff uh, are needed to step out to serve as reserves for the IDF. Yes. So, I mean, without doubt, the war is going to have a huge impact economically on the country. Um, I guess my comments were more around the resilience of the you know the tech sector, yeah. but you know every the economy is suffering huge um, impact, and the cost. This doesn't even talk to the cost of the war, of course. You know the the, the cost of funding the, the the military and so on. So it's going to have long term impact, and and I I'm really not uh, an expert in in saying how how that will pan out as we go forward, but it's uh, it's going to be devastating. So uh, I think it's about time uh, that we heard from uh, Professor Yoav Livni. If you want to uh, unmute yourself, uh, Yoav, uh, and certainly uh, it's good to have you uh, with us. Thank you. Uh, we're going to just talk about um, some stories of innovation and resilience in Israel. And uh, since you're here in Australia, you are representative of one that's uh, quite an amazing one. Uh, that's ensuring uh, food security and sustainability in 
in uh, Israel and potentially um, the world. Do you want to tell us about uh, what it is that you're uh, doing? Indeed. Thank you very much for having me. So, uh, yes, among my uh, research activities at the Technion, uh, Israel Institute of Technology, the uh, Faculty of Biotechnology and Food Engineering, uh, I'm uh, focusing on uh, research in uh, developing alternative proteins, alternatives to animal-based food. Uh, and um, within that activity, I'm, I'm leading a, a whole campus, a campus-wide uh, endeavor uh, establishing the Sustainable Protein Research Center at the Technion, which is apparently the first uh, academic research center in sustainable protein in the world. Uh, and we are uh, dedicated to uh, helping uh, overcome the global challenges of, uh, of uh, food security and uh, uh, sustainability due to um, the, the great burden uh, of the animal agriculture uh, that is having on, on, uh, on land, uh, on water, and, uh, and uh, pollution and various other aspects of that uh, industry. Uh, in, including uh, global warming by greenhouse gas emission and also uh, antibiotics, antibiotics usage, which is uh, uh, another major problem. 70% of the world's uh, antibiotics produced is being used by the animal industry. And so, um, and that causes development of antibiotic resistance, uh, which may become the world's leading uh, cause of mortality in a couple of decades. So. We're trying to change that track by looking for alternatives to to eating animals. We cannot continue eating animals, uh, and and the problem is that while the world's population is growing, the appetite for eating animal-based foods is even growing faster, and that's not a sustainable trajectory. We need to change that. We need to find alternatives, and there are various. Uh, directions of research and innovation in, in that respect, like plant-based material, plant-based alternatives, uh, tissue culture-based alternatives, fermentation-based alternatives, and even insect-based alternatives. And so we, the, the center that we are uh, establishing at the Technion is really a campus-wide uh, activity with over 30 researchers, researchers from uh, about 11 different faculties uh, who are all eager to take part in this very important uh, multidisciplinary effort uh, to develop um, new technologies which will enable us to gradually replace the, the habit of eating animals uh, with more sustainable uh, alternatives. So yes, that's, that's uh, our focus right now and we're trying to uh, recruit um, uh, and, and gain support from various uh, sources to to fund and uh, support this this activity do you want to explain for our our listeners how you actually go about producing meat a bit, a bit of a, a summary of the uh, the process that you pursue okay so as i mentioned there are four different uh, approaches the the more classical one is plant-based uh where you take plants uh, like soy, for example, that's maybe the most common example, but there are many other plant sources from which you can take proteins, extract the protein, and then 
through various uh, food processing uh, uh, processes like extrusion and, and similar processes, you try to form texture which resembles the fibrous structure or texture of, of meat and combining with various other uh, ingredients for the right flavor and, and texture, trying to imitate the, the texture and taste of meat and also its nutritional composition. And uh, some innovative technologies like 3D printing are very helpful uh, in creating the right shape and, and texture uh, and um, form which will give it look and, and taste and structure as similar as possible to the real thing. Because our goal is really to not just to aim at the vegetarians and the vegans, but to really aim at the mainstream of, of uh, meat, meat uh, eaters and give them something which would be uh, a good alternative, both in terms of sensory uh, aspects and in terms of price parity. The other uh, maybe more exciting uh, direction is based on tissue culture. Tissue culture is a technology which has been developed particularly for making uh, implants, organs, replacement of, or, of uh, injured organs. And this technology uh, found a new... Uh, uh, direction of application in forming um, tissue, muscle tissue uh, uh, for making food or making meat. And so that's been a very, very uh, exciting development. And that can also be combined with, with 3D printing. So uh, you can uh, combine, let's say, uh, plant-based 3D printed uh, steak in which you embed cells which are taken from an animal and if you take stem cells from an animal, those stem cells can still differentiate in different uh, directions. And you can sort of convince them to differentiate and form into muscle, muscle tissue or uh, into fat tissue and to recreate the almost exact composition and taste and texture as, as a real meat product. Um, so that's another uh, exciting technology. Another uh, track is fermentation-based technologies, often combined with genetic engineering, where you want, for example, if you want to make milk, uh, you can express genes which are, let's say, genes express, uh, uh, expressing uh, milk proteins in, in a cow, express them in a uh, microorganism, and then produce that microorganism in a big fermenter, extract from that the, the milk proteins, and produce milk which has not seen any cow, but it would still have a very similar composition. So there are several interesting startups working in that in that field. And and last is the as I mentioned the direction of using insects. And there are some startup companies uh, growing various insects like fruit larvae, fruit fl fruit fly larvae, and uh, trying to extract extracting from that uh, proteins and oils which are uh, highly nutritious, and, and um, uh, there's another company extracting proteins from uh, grasshoppers that might even be a kosher uh, solution, so as, as uh, locusts, for example, is considered kosher. Uh, so uh, it's very exciting uh, <laughs> um, array of activities and very fascinating technologies, which I'm sure we'll all be able to see on our plates in a few years from now, uh, it's it's getting there slowly but surely. All right, so if you enjoy a good steak, uh, 
get into it now because it may not uh, be an option uh, for for that much longer. Uh, also, the um, the first option you mentioned about uh, based upon um, soy has been uh, available for quite some time. I know that uh, people have often uh, found Chinese restaurants that serve um, food that uh, resembles meat. Uh, that has been a, a, a popular venue for people who go out to dine. With um, with uh, the work that you've been doing, uh, of course, you've mentioned the issue of uh, of uh, being kosher or not. I think it's a good opportunity now to mention that if people want to go and uh, and hear more on this particular aspect, that uh, tonight you're going to be uh, in an event with uh, Rabbi Mendy Eisenschmidt at uh, the South Caulfield Hebrew Congregation and uh, the event's called Tonight, a professor and a rabbi walk into a kitchen. <laughs> uh, so I think that could be quite entertaining. I would assume that people can still uh, obtain tickets if they uh, roll up to the to the door tonight to uh, to hear uh, what you, you have to say. And w- one of the... Uh, one of the companies you've been connected with is Aleph Farms, and uh, in a world first last month, Israel's health ministry actually approved the sale of uh, cultivated meat uh, by them. And uh, this is also now happening in other countries, uh, isn't it? In uh, uh, Singapore, potentially, and um, in in uh, in Switzerland, I believe. Well. Ed- to, to make things a little bit more accurate, uh, the first in the world approval for chicken uh, meat based on tissue culture was, was uh, back in 2020 in Singapore and uh, this year also in the United States. Uh, and same in both places, it's the company called Just was producing and selling their product. And Israel is the first in the world to approve beef, uh, okay. cultured beef. Uh, made by Aleph Farm, and that's just happened like a couple of weeks ago. So we're very excited about that. And um, yeah, we hope that with time, more and more countries will follow. And uh, there's still there's still challenges, not just in the regulatory approval, but in, in price parity. I mean, those products are quite similar already in taste and appearance and texture in many other respects, but they're still quite expensive. And unfortunately, some of the products which these companies started selling, they had to stop selling because, um, I mean, people bought it at first. They tasted said, oh, wow, this is really great. And but they, then they went back to eating the regular uh, stuff, partly because it's still more expensive. But uh, we are very optimistic that thanks to the advancement in technology, in scale-up, and those technologies are going to bring to the market cheaper and cheaper products. And on the other hand, the prices of meat and animal source materials will, with time, become more and more expensive because of the of all of the reasons I mentioned and the burden on, on the environment and diminishing resources. So at some point, those alternatives will become competitive and become more and more um, prevalent. It's now just a challenge of those companies which really break through the the ice, you know, to get this on the market. The challenge to keep them alive uh, commercially because we're still not at, we're still not there at price parity and that's going to be a challenge. I hope governments and other organizations may help uh, those companies, you know, survive through those tough times uh, until we get there to to make it 
worthwhile for anyone to buy those products and to to save the world eventually there's it's really uh, if we don't do that conversion into alternatives really we're uh, we're fast racing to a wall there's big there's no way to say it uh, otherwise I mean it's really a it's it might be it might have catastrophic uh, consequences if we don't do something dramatic to change the course of things uh, very foreboding and uh, a great example of uh, innovation coming out of Israel uh, the one you've been talking about can I bring you back uh, please uh, Michelle to uh, just cover perhaps uh, another aspect or two of uh, Israel's resilience in the in the current uh, climate of, of, of war uh, I kind of got the idea to uh, to bring you on when I saw that uh, uh, Vietnam and Israel have uh, established a free trade agreement uh, only uh, very recently, and this is the first free trade agreement for Israel within the ASEAN market, that's uh, Southeast Asia, uh, for uh, Israeli tech and exports uh, via Vietnam. Now, Vietnam and Israel have actually been uh, quite friendly for uh, quite a long time so uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, this uh, uh, very uh, good development yes well actually uh, as you know David I, I I actually was in Vietnam recently just for a holiday in fact over the summer and uh, but I had the opportunity then to meet with the um, the Israeli ambassador and, and trade uh, counselor during my visit there which was which was really very insightful because it's often, I guess, a region that, you know, we don't necessarily think about so much in terms of its relationship with Israel. But, in fact, Israel's relationship with uh, Vietnam goes back now three decades, more than three decades, which um, of diplomatic relations. And it's a very, very strong um, and, and positive um, partnership, particularly in the realm of, of business and, and innovation. And as you said, it has uh, recently culminated. In fact, on the day I was there, I think they literally just did the final paperwork for the um, signing of the free trade agreement, which is not only Israel's first free trade agreement with the Asian region, but it's in fact Vietnam's first free trade agreement with the Middle East. So it goes both ways. And there is um, many people may not realise that Vietnam has become a, a very important high-tech manufacturing um, centre globally. Um, I believe it is now the number one manufacturer, for example, of mobile phones in the world. People may not realise these things, and I think particularly as um, a lot of high-tech manufacturing is now moving out of China, both perhaps for political reasons but also because of cost reasons, um, Vietnam has really boomed in an amazing way. And, of course, that makes for a great collaboration with Israel in terms of its technology and innovation and that's where there is so much partnership really blooming between the two countries so um yes it was a it was a very um you know i guess encouraging um and 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 an interesting um insight into just what what is going on in southeast asia which of course when you think of asean you've got um israel has very strong relationships with many of the asean members like vietnam and uh Singapore and, and Thailand as examples. But, of course, there are other countries in ASEAN like um, Malaysia and Indonesia and Brunei where, they're not, where there aren't uh, diplomatic relations. So this partnership for Israel actually provides access to all of those markets through that partnership with Vietnam. So that's a, it's a very exciting um, 
initiative that uh, has come to fruition. And as uh, listeners may not know, uh, two years ago, uh, South Korea's uh, National Assembly ratified another free trade agreement uh, with Israel, which was actually the first free trade agreement between Israel and any country in Asia. Uh, so uh, I think we're uh, getting close to, to the end. I just didn't have an opportunity to get you to talk about uh, innovation in the health arena. Perhaps just highlight the two the, the subject areas where uh, things are, are happening in that space, and uh, then uh, we can wrap it all up, uh, Michelle. With pleasure. So I mean, Israel has long been known for its. I guess, world-class, world-leading um, expertise in health innovation. Um, and in terms of, its, you know, there's there's probably about 2,000 startup companies that operate in areas like digital health, um, med tech, biotech, pharmaceuticals, as an example. So it's long had, um, you know, ex- well-recognised capabilities in that place around the world. And listeners will remember during COVID how Israel's um, really led the rollout of the COVID vaccine campaign globally because of its extraordinary digital health record system and infrastructure that enabled Israel to be like a live, um, almost like a live uh, clinical trial for the world of the vaccine. But I guess through the war, it's interesting to see how crisis always sparks innovation. And, and, and sadly, there's obviously been a great need for innovation in the health space um, through the last four months. And so there's been all sorts of things that have really um, come out of, of the war, which will have long-term benefits for all um, all over the world, the, in particular in areas like triage, rehabilitation, mental health um, and other areas. So um, there, there will be, you know, there will be eventually some positive things that come from this terrible time. Well, I thank you both for talking to me today on the Israel Connection, Professor Yoav Livni and Michelle Bloom. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.